Hello, everybody. Welcome to Success Defined. I'm Ben McDonald, and I have the privilege of welcoming Cliff Gardner to the podcast. And Cliff has been CFO. He's been MLB and NASCAR licensee. He and a business partner uh, started, grew, and eventually sold the largest online auto parts platform. And now Cliff is running a, a CAEO the uh, online company Schedule Any Lesson. And it's a way for instructors, teachers, and coaches to connect with lesson takers. So Cliff, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Ben. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I want to start uh, where you are as a, C as a CFO, because you were CFO for about five companies or so, I believe. You were able to go into a lot of different companies with different managers, different owners, and really see and learn from the different structures. So can you share with us what were some of the most common mistakes that you encountered as you went into a new company? Uh, I would suggest that typically the most common mistake is the lack of commitment to infrastructure and back office. There's a typical business model, especially if you're dealing with an entrepreneurial model, where people start out, they sell something, they decide what their business model is, they go to market with it, they have some success, they get some sales, they get some contracts, and they typically go very thin on the back office, and they view accounting and finance as an overhead expense. And I can tell you firsthand, that is not an overhead expense. I mean, you can't call it a profit center, right. but they... It is, it is the critical nucleus of success for a company, in my mind, of growing your revenues, managing your expenses, managing your personnel costs, and making sure that you've got a defined plan and you've got the stewardship in place to lead a company going forward. And if companies treat it as just a clerical, accounts payable, accounts receivable, uh, nuisance-type function in the back office, they will really damage their company and not prepare their company for growth. And I think that's the biggest thing is make sure that you build a real solid foundations for growth for any size company. Yeah, no, that's, that's perfect. And I, I think it, uh, a lot of people probably are hearing that and it, it resonates and makes some sort of sense, but how were you able to be successful going into these companies, knowing what you know from the outside, seeing these mistakes, how were you able to communicate with the people already in the company saying, Hey, here's an issue and we need to change it. How were you able to convince people to buy into your vision? Uh, I think the best way to describe that is I always differentiate between accounting people and financial people. And 90% of the people that do accounting are accounting people. They live in the general ledgers, they live in the spreadsheets, they do debits and credits, and their sense of accomplishment is issuing financial statements. Let's look at the other way around. Financial statements are literally irrelevant. I consider them the equivalent of yesterday's newspaper. They're outdated when they're published. Yeah. I was mentored by a really brilliant man, and he taught me early in my career, the first time I became assistant controller and controller, he taught me that a good CFO lives 18 months in the future, not six, nine, or 12, but 18 months, and that a good CFO conducts the activities to influence the future financial and performance results of a company. So each time I would come into a new company, and I, I really did make it hard on myself. I went from commercial construction to home health care to behavioral health care to commercial construction again to uh, cardiac care to manufacturing. And each time I would come in, I would see the same common um, threads or the same common issues. So 
Uh, the difference again between an accounting person and a financial person is a financial person has an ability to communicate, communicate effectively with non-financial people. And that is what's so critical. The first time That's a great point. The first time I went into commercial construction, the first thing they did is they sent me out in a construction trailer on a $100 million project for six weeks and said, don't come back until you really understand what the operators do out there. And that was phenomenal. They were like, oh, here comes the college kid. We're going to bust him down. <laughs> Put it that way. But it, it didn't matter whether it was construction people in a trailer or the 800 home health nurses that I had around the country or the 1,500 cardiac clinicians that I had around the country. The key is to really respect the operators. There's so many people in the office, you know, the whole ivory tower syndrome of, of mandates coming out of the corporate offices that the operators have to do. But to me, the secret is to go out there and befriend your operators, really understand what they do, respect and appreciate what they do, and understand your role. If you're in any role in back office, your role is to augment the activities of the operators. That's how you get the best collective goals and accomplishments. And the way do that, you show them respect and esteem and appreciation and spend time with them and then be responsive to what their needs are out there instead of issuing mandates from the corporate office. And I always, once I really developed that tandem with the operators, well, you know, you, you know, you've made it when an operator calls you and says, Hey, I'm thinking about doing this deal. Would you take a look at it before I do it? <laughs> 99% of the time when you're in the back office, Contract shows up in your inbox, and there it is. Do something with it. Yep. So that would always be my my encouragement to entrepreneurs and, and small business owners is really respect your operators. Be a really, really good listener, and then be responsive and react to what their needs are. That's that's so incredible, and it's applicable to uh, any industry, right? And it's whether you're dealing with people underneath you as, as a manager role or you're an actual owner of a company and you, you have to care for everybody. The care and understanding of who you're working with, that doesn't matter what industry you're in. Like you said, it, you had to do that with different companies. And if you can take the time and truly show that you care for those people and that you're learning and understanding what they have to go through, then they're going to have that same mutual respect for you. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And you can just see the relationship develop and the confidence in their activity with the operators because they've typically have always felt slighted before. And now all of a sudden they feel like they have a true business partner in the corporate office and you're working as one. Yep. So not everybody's best interest. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that you brought that up. I think that's, I think that's great value for anybody in, in any sort of position running a company. So I want to keep going with, with your career, but before I do, there's a couple of things I want to hit on from your younger years. So the first one, uh, it takes us back to high school. You were a, a good baseball player. One of your primary goals was to being able to continue going on and playing baseball. And then something happened in your life that really changed your outlook dramatically in your journey. So can you share that with us really quick? Sure. Happy to, Ben. Uh, when I was 16 years old, I was a little irresponsible, and I, uh, I was coming back from a drag race one night, and I took my Camaro at 80 miles an hour into the darkness, the road wide, and I went straight ahead and went 60 feet out and 16 feet down and landed on the driver's door, and I broke my back. And I laid there for the next two and a half hours, 
and something that's going to get me out of there. And at that point in time, you have a lot of time to reflect when you're laying there. But the toughest reflection was the paramedic that laid there with me would take the flashlight and shine it on my feet, and he would say, move your toes. And I'd try to move my toes, but I couldn't tell if they were moving or not. Mm-hmm. It was two different bodies, and then I'd have to get enough nerve to look down to see if they were moving or not. And I, I sat, I laid there, and I just reflected, and I said, if I can ever walk again. Because at that point, I really thought I was going to be paralyzed. Yeah. It feels like two different bodies. And I said, if I can ever walk again, I'm going to live every day to its fullest. I'm going to be the best person I can be, the most outgoing person I can be, and I'm just going to really live every day to its fullest. Uh, forget that deferred gratification stuff. I'm going to enjoy every day starting with the first day I can walk again. And that was a critical moment in my life. It ended my baseball career, which was <laughs> very depressing for me. But it just really put me in a position of uh, advanced reflection. Yeah. Probably what I would call it for a 16-year-old. Just had that, that introspective that I had laying there. Two and a half hours is a long time laying there like that. So yeah. it, it must have felt like an eternity, right? I'm sure it felt significantly longer than two and a half hours. Well, the, the thing that's ironic, and I tell my friends this all the time, and that's been a long time ago, but if I had it all to do over again, I would drive in that ditch again. Despite all the back pain that I've had subsequent to that, for how that changed my entire life, I, I feel very blessed and thankful that that happened to me. Yeah, yeah. because when you're a 16-year-old, the most important thing may be playing baseball or, or having fun driving the Camaro, but when you can look back now and see the trajectory of your life and what that did to change it, um, I'm, I'm sure a big piece of it is just valuing the fact that you were able to appreciate every single day after that. Every day. Yeah. Absolutely. So one thing, and I know just from us talking before is you have a lot of genuine humility, but I want to bring something up about your work ethic because I think it's unbelievably impressive. So you're, you found an incredible way to pay for your last two years of your college career. And, and it's an awesome story, but it, not just a story, I think it speaks to uh, how you were able to be successful in everything that you went forward in. So can you uh, share that with us? Sure. Happy to, Ben. Uh, just to give a little background on that, my father passed away when I was three months old. and I didn't have any brothers or sisters. It was just my mom and I living in the middle of 140 acres in the middle of nowhere. And uh, we, we didn't have any money. I grew up real poor and had to be resourceful. And as I Went to finish my last two years in college. You can imagine this. Hit 24.6% in my hometown. So there were absolutely no jobs for college kids because no one would give a college kid a job mm-hmm. because taken away from a dad who had to support children. Yep. Absolutely nothing I could do. So literally, I decided I'm going to have to get really resourceful and do something creative. So I went to the local public library. I took out a book on fur trapping, I read up on it, and said, I'm going to build 140 acres of wilderness here. There, there's plenty of uh, raccoons with the targeted animal. Yep. Uh, so I read up and thought, I could do this. So I, I bought a mail or I picked up a mail order catalog. I sent in, I bought some traps and some scents and some gloves. Next thing you know, there I was at four o'clock in the morning, sliding, sliding up and down rain and sleep covered hills and, and becoming a fur trapper. 
And uh, I did it absolutely out of necessity. I mean, I love animals, so it wasn't something that came to me. But at the end of the day, I ended up catching 199 raccoons. They were selling at an all-time high of $42 each, and I made $8,000. At that point in time, that was enough to fully fund my last two years in college. So <laughs> I would have never gotten through college otherwise. Wow. Just the, the resourcefulness of saying, all right, I have this problem, and if I don't figure it out, I can't finish my degree. And to, uh, to go and be able to do that, the, the work ethic and resourcefulness, I, I think that's amazing. Yeah. And everything that we're going to talk about going forward, all of it goes back to that foundation, right? Everything that you've been able to do going forward, you could look at problems and figure out a way to find a solution. And you were able to put in that sweat equity in order to make sure that things were accomplished and got things done the right way. Um, well, I can tell you, I've, I've always taught my kids that no is not an answer. I, I just want to deeply instill them. No is a temporary deferral in my mind. It means you weren't smart enough. You didn't work hard enough. You weren't prepared enough. You weren't diligent enough. You just didn't, you weren't savvy enough. Something didn't go right the first time. But there, there can't be any quit. I mean, I'm kind of like a junkyard dog. There's just no quit in the old dog. Yep. You're just coming back for more. But you, you have to have that determination, that resiliency, I think. To be yep. so I'm, just, I'm just very thankful I grew up, you know, you grew up in Iowa in an agricultural setting. <laughs> Work hours from 6 a.m. until 8 p.m. every day of your life. That's all they know. Yep. So Work ethic is so deeply ingrained in you your entire life. So what's mm-hmm. with that? Yeah. Yeah. No, I can, I can relate with that. My, uh, my grandfather was a dairy farmer. So he'd, uh, he'd call our house at like six thirty or seven and he would uh, say good afternoon because he's already been up in the, in the barn for about three hours. So, yeah. so I, I can relate, but you, you talked there about a couple of things that were uh, priorities to you, but one other one that, that I know is a primary focus is surrounding yourself with extraordinary people. And it's going to lead us into uh, you starting uh, your entrepreneurial uh, journey. But before we even get there, uh, can you talk about how surrounding people with extraordinary or surrounding yourself with extraordinary people has benefited you in your career prior to uh, starting your own companies? Oh, my gosh. I'd be happy to speak to that. Um, When I went into commercial construction, I inherited a staff. And I inherited a tremendous amount of underachievers. I refer to them as political driftwood. Some people call them roses, retired on the job. But people that did absolutely nothing and took a salary. And I, I couldn't accept that. It was impossible for me to watch. So when I took my next position, I literally, during the interview, I asked the senior vice president, I said, does this position come with the irrevocable right to hire and fire? And he said, well, that's a strange question. He said, why is it important to me? And I said, I'm a full accountability guy. If you let me name the team, I will take 100% accountability and responsibility for every responsibility that's bestowed upon me. But if you're going to try to push people on me, then, then this interview is over. I literally looked at him and said, it's, it's over because I'm not going to do that again. I want to be able to name the team. And he looked at me and goes, that's phenomenal. He goes, I'm going to give you the job, and I'm going to let you name the team. And in that particular situation, I started with that one person in finance. We had 0% of behavioral health care in the United States in acute care hospitals. When I left, we had 72% nationally. 
And I had 42 people in my finance department, which I hired. And I was so proud that I had 42 superstars. Every single one was a superstar. When I was in the prior position, I used to ask my boss all the time, which chair do you want an underachiever in? Because you know, you're saying, you, I want to put, he always used to say, you can't put a superstar in every chair. And I said, well, why not? It doesn't make any sense to me. But where I had the 40 employees, I convinced them. I said, look, I can do this with 40, 40 overachievers, 60 average people, or 100 below average people. What do you want to pay for? And I, my model was pay, pay 20% above market for overachievers. So you never leave, they never leave. You have great retention. You're paying for 48 instead of 60 or 100 people. And it worked out phenomenally well. And ever since then, I've just been acutely focused on surrounding myself with overachievers. Because I honestly believe so many people in corporate America are literally afraid to hire people more intelligent than them because it make them look better to be a threat. It's just not a good political play for them. I completely oppose that strategy and, and love to work with superstars because of the collaborative talents and the challenge factor. You get together in that room for whether it's for 15 minutes or five hours and you grind stuff out with a lot of talent. I used to tell them, I'll come with an idea, you come with an idea, and the blended idea we leave with will be stronger than anything we could have done on our own. Right, exactly, exactly. It's it's using the uh, the strengths of everybody on the team versus if there's only one or two all-stars and everybody else is underachievers, you end up listening to the, those one or two ideas and everybody else, they're just bystanders. So, and the, key, the key point I think that, as I mentioned earlier, the other topic was the key is you got to be a good listener. You gotta listen to your customers, you gotta listen to your employees, you gotta listen to everybody around you, including your competitors, so you can be the most responsive and proactive in the marketplace. Yep. So can I wanna dig a little bit deeper on this because you hear uh, or at least I've heard in different places the difficulties of having um, a team full of, of superstars because everybody wants to be the A person. So how were you able to create a culture with the teams that you developed and make it into a, a really cohesive unit instead of a bunch of individual all-stars all trying to do their own thing? Well, yeah, I, I would suggest it started during the interview process. I've interviewed over a thousand accounting and financial people and hired over 200. And I would always set the tone right there of the team approach that we have. And I would always let them know right away that I treat, and I can honestly say this, you can't, I treat the maintenance person identical to the CEO. I treat everybody identical across the spectrum. I always said the only reason for an org chart is for communication. Okay? It's not for value to the organization. It's just a communication tool. That's all it is. And I would tell people during the interview process, if I ever walk by a cubicle and I hear through the wall, you're just a staff accountant. You're just a payroll clerk. You're just an admin. I said, I will walk you out. I will fire you on the spot, and I will walk you out. I only have team players. That's essential to me. And once they understand that culture on the way in the door, you've already established a precedent for it, but then you have to live it through your daily conduct. And I made sure that there was never competition at all. And there, there would be times where I, I would have Three senior accountants, for example, and I would suggest to them, okay, there's going to be an accounting management position opening up, and I'm going to tell you what, you know, at some point I'll have to make the decision. And for the two of you that don't get it, 
there's a real good potential if we haven't grown enough. I always try to fix everything through growth. There's CFOs to think their job is to manage costs. I think that's absurd. You, you, you manage revenues. You strive to grow revenues and outrun your costs. That's how you get your SG&A from 13% to 11 is by changing the numerator, not the denominator. A lot of the finance people sit there and grind down trying to lower the cost. So I usually try to develop an upper pathway through growth. If I didn't have it, there were times I sincerely sat down and said, well, I picked, I picked Jane for the accounting manager, and I talked to the other two and said, I really think you're at a point in time where I don't have enough to offer you here. I'd like you to help, help you find an opportunity somewhere else. My employees always had a sense that my fiduciary duties ran to them, not to the company. That's, that's incredible. It's, it's so unique to hear you say that. So many people, they get caught up in what's best for them. And so they would never be willing to go out of their way to help some of their best people go find opportunities elsewhere. But I think that also leads into your culture too. When you said, hey, we're going to either help you grow in the company or we're going to make sure that we help you grow individually outside. It allows everybody to have that, that unbiased buy-in to your culture at all times because they know that you are putting them first. I think, I think the key is I, I really always try to convey a message of having a fairness doctrine. But they really felt like they were in an equitable setting. I, I despise the politics of corporate America. I mean, I'm not a big fan. I won't use this for a foundation to go off on corporate America, but I, I truly despise corporate America after having spent 25 years in it. I think it stunts innovation and inspiration. And it, it forces really bad personality traits from people. Defense, being defensive, being protectionist, you know, being disingenuous at times, having to do things that they don't feel comfortable doing, but they feel like they have to be politically correct, all the nonsense that goes on. I just have a very open, honest environment where everybody knew they could be candid at any time. I remember one time one of my employees got so mad, he screamed at me, including a few expertise, because I had a request from the board that was just too arduous to do. And everybody's like, are you going to fire him? I laughed. I said, are you kidding me? I love him. I love his passion. I love him. I can't. And I said, I think it's just an any request from the board as he does. The only difference is I understand it has to happen regardless of whether we want to do it or not. You know, and so pe- people always felt comfortable being themselves. At, at the end of the day, you work a lot. And I just really feel the foundation, if you're going to work anywhere, and this is whether you're being entrepreneurial or working for, I've worked for four companies over $5 billion in revenues, is you've got to get personal and professional enrichment and fulfillment. If you're not getting enrichment and fulfillment out of your job, then you need to go do something else. Doing it for money or because you think it's a lack of choice or something, then you're sure changing yourself. You got to somehow bootstrap it and go to find something that you can really excel in instead of just, you know, sitting there going through the motions. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's a perfect place to, to pivot um, because you mentioned a couple things there. You mentioned the enrichment fulfillment. And then you also uh, mentioned your your distaste for what corporate America can do. You had a pivotal point in your life that got you almost immediately out of corporate America into thinking of running your own thing and, and getting into the entrepreneurial mindset. So uh, so let's go into that a little bit. Oh, sure. I'd be happy to, Ben. Um, basically, 
I, I, I was very, very blessed to have gone to one of the top accounting schools in the United States, a college called University of Northern Iowa, and uh, passed the CPA exam, went into corporate America. And when I went into corporate America, I knew from day one, I, I'm really big on goals and objectives, and that nothing short of CFO or CEO would be acceptable. Okay. I was willing to pay the price and do whatever it took to get there. And I did that for 20 years. And I, at this point in time, I'm in San Diego. I'm the CFO for the largest open-heart surgery company in the United States, doing 50,000 open-heart surgeries. We're in 800 hospitals in 40 states. I'm traveling 26 weeks a year. The other 26 weeks a year, I'm working 80 hours a week. And so that kind of sets the background for this sentinel moment is I would always call home about 8.30 and tell the kids I loved them before they went to bed. And this one night, my wife said, well, you know what Grant prayed for at the dinner table tonight? Well, I said, um, we're in San Diego, I don't know, Legoland, SeaWorld, Disneyland, wants to go to the beach. You know, what would you like to do? And she said, no. He sat there and he prayed that he wished his daddy could come home and have dinner with him. And that hit me like an unbelievable ton of bricks because my dad died when I was three months old. And there I am, all of a sudden, I'm an absentee father. I mean, am I doing anything right? Working 80 hours a week and never being with my kids? No. Do I have a house where we watch the sunset in the ocean every night? Yes. Have a tremendous lifestyle in San Diego? Yes. Is the monetary stuff worth it? Absolutely not. And I literally hung up the phone. I looked at the phone and said, that's it. I'm not going to get denied my opportunity to be a father. And the next morning, I walked into the CEO's office, and I quit. I didn't have another job. I didn't. I had, had no intention of ever quitting and derailing my corporate career. And that that pivotal moment in life, I, I was that decisive. I just walked in and said, "I'm leaving." He said, "Where are you going?" I said, "I don't have any idea what's next, but I'm not doing this anymore." And since then, I've made 99% of my son's baseball games, and I've made every single one of my daughter's basketball games when it didn't conflict with his schedule, and and. You know, I didn't make the kind of money during those years of trying to be entrepreneurial that I would have had I stayed the course in corporate America. But I'm so thankful for that one single prayer changing all our lives. Yeah, it's that's it's a really uh, empowering story. And with this show being called Success Defined, uh, one of the main reasons for it is I believe a lot of uh, individuals chase after others or society's kind of definition of success, right? And a lot of times that goes into wealth. Uh, and you realized in that one moment that your success was not defined by wealth. It was defined in part with the relationship with your family and that that was a top priority for you. So I, I love hearing about that because it shows where your values lie, and, and it also showed with what was most important to you at that moment. Well, there, there was an excellent quote. I love reading the LinkedIn feeds every morning to start my day. And so I will I'll plagiarize this one. But it just said there's a big difference between self-worth and net worth. Don't value yourself based upon your net worth. That's irrelevant. Okay, who cares what's in the bank or the investment account? What kind of person are you? What are you contributing to your family and society? Yeah, yeah 100%. So, so that pivotal, pivotal moment led you down this, uh, this entrepreneurial journey, which has now had a few stops along the way. So before you started uh, OEM, the, the online uh, auto parts platform, um, 
you tried doing something else. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and what you learned from that that allowed you to then become more successful with OEM? Sure. Happy to, Ben. Well, I'm a huge, huge baseball fan. My life kind of revolves around baseball, even though I can't play because of my back. And so I had an opportunity to start a sports division of a replica company, a company that makes replicas of motorcycles and tractors and trailers and all kinds of cool items. So I, I worked out a deal with them and did the launch this division on my own. So I went out and I got licensing with Major League Baseball, Major League Baseball Players Association, the top 25 colleges in the country, Harley-Davidson, and on and on. And I started making the coolest licensed sports products, I think, that have ever been made. Like I went back and made a Derek Jeter Rookie of the Year piece with a lot of photos from Derek from 1996. Probably my best one, I made a piece I, I, on special request Cal Ripken got me a license for the Baseball Hall of Fame, and I made a commemorative for Cal's induction to the Hall of Fame. Wow. I looked at 1,297 photos of Cal Ripken in one night to pick out the art for this piece. <laughs> I was having the greatest time in my life doing this. I mean, it was no longer, for the first time in my life, it wasn't a job. First time in my life, I woke up without an alarm clock. I was not a morning guy. I was in my office at 6.30 in the morning. A lot of times... If the kids weren't around, so I was there till midnight or back in there till midnight. It was no longer a job. It was just so much fun. But one of the things about being entrepreneurial is timing. Okay. And there could not have been worse timing than to make a full commitment. I got my first 42,000 pieces shipped in right about the 1st of January, 2008. Yeah. Good timing. Good timing. <laughs> Just in time for the worst financial collapse in the history of the United States, where the, the one sector you didn't want to be in was the 100% discretionary consumer sector. I put myself right in the crosshairs. Literally, everybody loved my products, but the buyers would say, hey, Cliff, there's no liquidity in the market. We can't take any risk on hard goods. I'd rather have an empty warehouse than have a warehouse full of product. And so... <laughs> But the junkyard dog in me wouldn't quit. Relentlessly stayed after it for all 2008 and 2009, countless hours, just myself. And finally, at the end of the day, I realized I have to give this up. That it was the rebound in the country was going to be too extended for where I was with that company. So I ultimately had to give that up because I committed to major licenses with Harley Davidson and Major League Baseball and everything. So it's not as though I could just stop, leave the 40,000 items in a warehouse and sell them when the economy recovered. I couldn't stop the bleeding. The royalties that I considered a privilege when I entered into them became a noose, basically. Yep. So. Yep. So, so you then were able to, uh, with your business partner, uh, you were then able to find a different opportunity, which obviously had a, a different um, uh, end to the story as well. So, so talk to us first about um, your unique relationship with Gary and how that developed, and then how you found uh, the, or kind of stumbled upon this opportunity of, of what to go after. Okay, sure. Uh, the saw Gary he's referring to is the technology person. 
When you're the CFO of a company, you have critical needs for information. You need it in a timely manner. You need it in the correct manner. And in my early days, I found that a lot of times IT departments would hold operations hostage almost for getting information out of the IT fight team. Well, that didn't align very well with my personality at all. Because like I mentioned earlier, I'm all about being a team player. You're all in with me. It's all hands in the middle. And so in I was having a disaster during a computer conversion, and I couldn't get January financials. This early in my career in 91, I couldn't get financials for January in April. I was under unbelievable duress from the board because the consultant had failed miserably on this conversion, and I had home health agencies all over the country that I couldn't report on. This fellow just through recruiting, he comes in, and in two weeks fixes everything. Well, since then... I've been in five places. I've taken him to all five places. We've done 12 mergers and acquisitions. We did an IPO and a secondary offering together. We did an industry roll-up together. We did an LBO together. And I never gave this man a challenge that he couldn't conclude successfully. And I'm rigorous. I'm truly, really rigorous with very, very high demands of excellence through the roof. I used to kiddingly say I went from a an exactist to a perfectionist <laughs> a little bit. And I gave him the most rigorous challenges over the years, especially when we were buying these companies, rolling them up, and he exceeded every expectation. So in 2012, we decided, hey, it's time to be entrepreneurial again. We think we can do something better than what has been done on the market currently. And that's the sort of what you refer to as OEM. Yeah, and, and we'll jump into OEM here right now. But before that, I just the way you were talking about it, we had touched earlier on surrounding yourself with extraordinary people. You found this extraordinary individual and and literally took him with you wherever you went because you saw how how much value he brought with you. So so I think that hits on something we talked about probably twenty minutes ago. Absolutely. So, so now you guys are going into uh, auto part uh, online platform and you, you did a lot of research with the competition. And one of the things that you found was that they weren't consumer centric, meaning that they were not prioritized on making it easy and useful for the consumer. Um, and I think one of the things that, that you focus a lot on is making sure that you're adding, adding a ton of value. So is that why you saw that there was such an opportunity because you could be that much better than everybody else out there? No question. Absolutely. And I said, I confirmed that modestly, but we, we, we looked, well, when I did this sports products, it, it, you never know where your experience base is going to evolve from. But once I signed a deal with Major League Baseball, I worked with MajorLeagueBaseball.MLB.com every day, selling my products through their e-commerce platform. Well, their e-commerce provider was GSI Commerce, which was one of the best e-commerce backbones in the country. Then I worked with Harley-Davidson, Overstock.com, and UpperDeck.com, and worked with all these e-com companies. So even though I wasn't selling as many sports products as I wanted to, I got five years of e-commerce experience when e-commerce was just emerging from 2005 on. Mm -hmm. And so that really became a tremendous foundation 
So we, we took that foundation, my e-com experience, looked at my technology guys' experience and said, could we build our own platform from the ground up? Okay. And what, what that really meant, OEM stands for Original Equipment Manufacturer Parts. We only sold the highest quality products made by the actual manufacturers of the vehicles. And so we set out to build the biggest parts platform ever created. We called it a digital parts counter. It's, it's great if you're in Dallas and there's 215 viewerships here, if you're a service center, to get a part. But, uh, but if you're in Boise or you're in Fargo and somebody shows up with a Porsche, how do you get a part? Well, we wanted to create a national footprint with a single platform where we ultimately offered 39 brands of vehicles, parts, on one platform. So a service center could go on and order parts for five different brands at one time, and we'd have them right to the door. And so that, that was kind of the, the genesis of this. We wanted it to be the most user-friendly, user-centric system possible for everybody. Just a few clicks, go to the door and, and pick up your parts. So we started this endeavor, and it, it truly was an endeavor. We started with 1.7 billion data elements, if you can imagine that. Billion with a B. And we built our own parts catalog from the ground up. Because anybody who had tried to do something in parts before did basically a cloud-based catalog that they would put out there and share it. Because that was their whole idea, was they wanted a subscription service and to share that one senior catalog. Well, for the search engines, that didn't provide any search value whatsoever. You didn't get recognized. So what we wanted to do is, is originate this parts catalog at the local domain level. And so that's what we did. We, we built our own parts catalog of every part for 39 brands from 1982 to current. And then the, the biggest issue was who's going to host this? If we can build the catalog, someone has to host it and give it the functionality and breathe life into it. Right. Well, because did, the, didn't you say that you uh, it turned into almost three quarters the size of Amazon's website or, or something close to that? That's that's what we were told when we turned it on. I, I don't know the exact page count for Amazon, mm-hmm. but we can explain the Magento thing, which makes sense with the page count, is we use the biggest e-commerce platform in the world called Magento. Well, the most pages that they would guarantee support for was 10 million pages. The largest user that they had was 14 million pages. Well, we needed, I wanted 100 million pages day one. And they looked at me with the first so they couldn't do it. But once again, surrounding myself with great people, I used the dust agenda. You've worked in a, here's the strange dichotomy, but when you've worked in a Fortune 500 setting as long as I have, and you switch to startups, you can't take your, change your mentality. You're used to having the best resources possible. It's the best scientists, the best doctors, the best clinicians, the best technical people, the best lawyers, underwriters, whatever it is. You're used to having that. So I wouldn't forgo that when I did a startup. So I got the best Magento development firm in the country. They collaborated with Magento and custom built our platform with us. And the day we turned it on, we had 65 million pages activated. And we were at the time that Amazon at that time had 80 million pages. Two guys in a garage turn on something three quarters the size of Amazon day one. Yeah. Yeah, so, so the best, the, to me, the best um, vindication of that was when you turn on your pages, uses their bots and their crawlers to electronically scan every one of your pages. It's called indexing 
or crediting your pages. We turned that site on and Google in 120 days indexed or approved 57 million pages in a row without an error. That was an absurd number. Yes. Yeah, it is. It is absurd, especially because who you were working with, the largest one that they had prior was 14 million. You had 57 million without an error. It's amazing. So one of the things that I want to ask about is uh, you talk a little bit about your, your belief in in the vision and in yourself, but also how it applies to uh, people starting businesses and small business owners. So you went, I believe what 56 months without paying yourself during this endeavor, right? That is correct. Okay. So, so 56 months, you have to have incredible belief in that vision. So can you talk us through that? Because I don't think, I don't think there's a lot of people out there that are listening to this and can resonate. Say, yeah, I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to go 56 months into, into anything without getting paid. But you had such belief in that end goal. Well, let me be completely candid as well, though. That was not the anticipation going into it. Right. I'm, I'm sure it wasn't. <laughs> Had we known that, we might have deferred. But honestly, when we when we did this, we had a plan. And obviously, being a CFO kind of guy, I should have a pretty good forward-looking plan, especially since I was trained to be 18 months in the future. Yep. And so when we started this, we understood we expected to go 12 months without getting paid, and we were really comfortable with that. And we felt, worst case, it, it may take 18 months. But for a project of that magnitude, everything took longer than what we anticipated it would, it would take. And uh, even when you try to do everything right, the, the development, for, well, first it took six extra months to get it funded. And the development took an extra couple of months. And then the beta testing took a couple extra months, and on and on. So... It ultimately took us practically two years to bring it to market before we even activated and perfected. So, uh, but what what I share with people, if, if you're going to do something entrepreneurial, you have to do a, a really strong self-evaluation of yourself and ask yourself, is this really the right thing? And you can't have a case of convenient listening or get you know intoxicated on your own idea and think it's the greatest idea ever. I mean, I see all the time people start to do something and don't realize there's others out there doing it in parallel to them they're not aware of. But I, I think the key is, do you have the resolve? Do you really have the resiliency? Do you have the tenacity? Do you have the perseverance to do it? And I think I mentioned to you earlier, I think there was probably like seven times where when I went to bed at night, I just wanted to find myself to sleep. You know, why do I do this? I mean, I had an unbelievably difficult time. I mean, trying to the approval of 39 manufacturers for a business model, that was one. Trying to get a merchant account without any credit, that was one. And there was this whole litany of pivotal moments where the whole project was delivered depending on a singular outcome. And it would have been so easy to quit before we ever turned it on. It would have been so easy to just go, this was really ill-advised. What were we thinking? I mean, it looked at 500 sites in the industry. I mean, we deliberately went after FordParts.com. We went after Mopar.com. We went after the big auto dealerships that had their own systems out there. And instead of letting that deter us, that encouraged us. We looked at those competitors and said, we can do this a lot better. But it turned out to be far more difficult than we ever found them when we started. And 
56 months is a long time with no income. I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, I bet. So what kept you in it? Because that if you expect 12 months, maybe 18 months, and you're okay with that, uh, I mean, 56 months, there's got to be times along that journey where, you, like you said, the, it was very easy for you to just throw in the towel and say, I'm, uh, we're done with this, let's figure something out. Why did that never happen? It's, it's, I would say it's just part personality. I mean, it's that junkyard dog syndrome. It's just, there's no quitting a dog. You just, if, if you're that resilient and just uh, adamant that you can do this, you have to believe in yourself all the way to the core when you challenge that deep. But the other piece was we, we felt that confident in the business model. We, we were able to clearly differentiate exactly what we were doing versus what all of those 500 did. And we, we felt like we could become the industry leader with this site. The combination of technology, the application, the customer focus, the ability to get free traffic. I mean, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this, but one of the things I'm most proud of, when we turned it on, we were the 400,000th most active site based on traffic for Amazon Alexa's company. And in 90 days, we passed 350,000 sites. We moved into the top 50,000 in the country in 90 days. So we pretty much had been acknowledged by Google indexing our 57 million pages, and then further acknowledgement by gaining that kind of traffic, we, we got to a point, the whole model nowadays is pay-per-click AdWord campaigns and promotions where you have to pay for every bit of traffic. Well, that wasn't our model. Our model was all organic traffic-based, and we, we got to a point where we had 125,000 visitors a day average for coming to our site. Yep. There were, there were, I guess in summary, there were victories along the way, along with the bloody noses, because there were plenty of those, there were victories along the way. And we just always believed in the end game of what this platform could do once it really got the way today. Yeah, it was uh, enough, enough little victories along the, along the road to, to keep you guys on track and, and keep you in the, in the venture. So that's kind of like they say about golfers. You know how golfers, they, they get one good shot per round, and it's enough to suck them in to enjoy golf and want to go do it again? That's right. <laughs> when you guys started this, uh, or, or even just along the way, was the vision and the end goal to, to sell this site or, or not? No, to be honest with you, it was not. Again, so much of my life comes back to not having had a father, having grown up so poor. My, my goal from day one, what, one of the things that I abhor about corporate America is the phrase exit strategy. It distracts people. It makes them completely focused on money for themselves and an exit strategy and sticks some investor in the future with it kind of thing. Now, when, when we started this, my goal was to create a legacy company for my children, something that they could easily, because at this point in time, they were both about starting college something that they could step have an opportunity to step into if they had wanted to once they graduated from college. So that, that was the goal. But as, as we went on, things changed during the time we did this. There was a critical moment in 2014 
where Google changed their algorithms and how the search returns came in and how much more you needed to start to uh, expend with, with Google to get traffic. And I want to be very careful. I don't say anything to disparage my Google. I don't want to do that. My daughter works there. So <laughs> be very careful. But this is the market appraisal of what happened is that you needed to partner more with Google. And in our model, we were two guys. We did this whole thing start to finish. I mean, we envisioned this, we funded it, we built it, we tested it, we launched it, we perfected it with two guys. And we put over, we talked about 56 months. That's translated into over 20,000 hours of split up we, we put into this. But you also have to be a realist. And the way our model was designed, it was a nice model because we never owned a park ever, literally. I had participating dealerships, and what I promised them was, you open up my portal in the morning, and I will have prepaid sales orders waiting for you. How nice is that? Not just a wedding, but a prepaid order. All you have to do is pick, pack, and ship. Pull these parts with this this packing slip, stick them in a box, print out a shipping label for my system, and ship. So it was perfect for the dealers, but they got the preponderance of the profit margin since the parts. And so we ultimately came to the realization and they did not want to spend any of their profit margin. This is an important caveat. They did not want to spend any of their profit margin reinvesting and paying Google for additional additional transactions and traffic. And so we were kind of at an abyss there about what to do next. And so that's where we concluded. I had 19 different ownership groups supporting the 39 brands. And we concluded it would make a lot more sense for one industry leader to adopt the whole model because they'd have the scope and breadth of all the dealerships within their internal system, all their social media, all their financial resources, all their operational resources, and it would be the technologically efficient model we wanted fully optimized with one dealership group. So that was kind of the, the turning point for that. Yeah, yeah, no, perfect. So. We're going to go into uh, what you have going on now uh, and spend a, a decent amount of time there. But um, one final piece on, on OEM, what was the the process of saying, okay, the, the solution is let's find that one industry leader. Uh, what's that process of coming to that conclusion and then actually getting the uh, the sale of the company completed? Well, again, I was very fortunate to have had the background that I had, having been in, in corporate America. So long, and at that point in time, I had done 11 mergers and acquisitions as a buyer and as a seller. So that foundation really helped. Once my partner and I concurred that we felt we needed to sell, the, we selected the target companies to go to. And all we selected were the top 10 auto dealership groups in the country. All of them at any dealership group that had more than $2 billion in annual revenue and had a road fixed operations back office. Uh, parts division, we felt they would be the perfect target. And so we put together an 80-page offering memorandum, and then I just started cold calling. And I just relentlessly pursued all 10 of them. Most of them didn't want anything to do with it because for one of the reasons we did it, they had all failed before. And they had a really bad taste in their mouth about it. So they've been there and done that, not doing it again, and they just wanted to run away from it. But I, uh, I ultimately cultivated a relationship with AutoNation, who's the largest auto dealership group in the country. 
They had a very savvy senior director of fixed operations, and he recognized the different. He was able to differentiate between what we did with our platform and what every one of the other 500 did. And once we had that astute cognizance in play, from there it really became easy. Yes. As it can be negotiating with a $20 billion company. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Little size differential. But anyway, it worked out very, very well. And we ultimately very amicably uh, sold AutoNation in 2017. And and wrapped it up. We we helped them transition it, and they're they're still running it today in the exact same name and everything. So yeah, yeah, that's amazing. It feels a little little essence of a legacy company, even though I don't want it, I don't own it. And I was I was very very clear to them during the sales process. That my ultimate goal was I wanted to see it meet and exceed the expectations we had for it. And that's why I was so keenly focused on helping them through the transition process. But I'm like, hey, don't screw this thing up, okay? <laughs> we really got this thing right. You understand what you're getting, but we want to make sure you're successful going forward. Yeah, and, and it sounds like you found the right partner to do that because they they saw the value in what you did. So you knew that the people that were on the other side of this of this deal that they saw your vision, they saw your value, and they were going to be able to take that and run with it. Absolutely. And the resources they have to commit to it. Yep. So, yep. Definitely a happy ending. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that leads into, we'd mentioned uh, sweat equity uh, earlier. And the sweat equity that you put into this project, right, this company, has now allowed you to uh, to pivot and and do something a little bit different. So, can you explain to us a little bit of what Schedule Any Lesson is, and and then a little bit of the uh, the reason why you're doing this versus uh, going after some other type of uh, venture? Yes, I'd be happy to. Uh, I'll probably be beaming because I'm so proud of this initiative, honestly, because. You know, I spent all those years in corporate America, and that can be pretty thankless. You know, when I was cynical, people asked me what I do for a living, and I say, I make other people money. You know, <laughs> my response or my retort. And now is my chance to give back. And I just really want to be benevolent and caring and outreaching and giving, and I want to help other people. And something that I've never understood in our country culture is how we treat our teachers in our country. I just think they're incredibly underpaid. I have struggled with that my whole life. I mean, I had, I think from Iowa, which is always in the top for educational excellence, had phenomenal teachers, phenomenal college professors. And then all of a sudden, you, you learn from these great educators and you go out and you make 10, 15, 20, 25 times what they're making. And you look 20 years later and they're still there not making any money. And because of their passion, their loyalty for students, and that frustrates me. Well, again, it's kind of a culmination of experiences that I've had to date. And what I wanted to do is come up with a model where I could help teachers and coaches. And what the model is, is <clears throat> there are a lot of teachers, especially, that tutor and provide private instruction. Well, why did they do that? They do that for one of two reasons. One is absolute economic necessity. They're just not making any money. 
and they somehow have to supplement it, which means they give up their nights and their weekends to tutor, or if they have a passion for sharing knowledge, or both are in play. But we took a look, just like looking at the 500 auto parts sites, I looked at all the, I call them lesson connection sites. These are sites that connect private instructors of any genre with people who are seeking lessons. It doesn't matter whether it's calculus or algebra or English or dance lessons, but these sites connect lesson takers with lesson givers. Okay. Well, what they do, I use the word confiscatory. I find it absolutely appalling how much money they take from these hardworking instructors. They literally, like the, the biggest one, for example, if an instructor were to get $15,000 of new services through their staff of the year, they would take $4,500 of it from the instructor. They would take 30%. Some of them take as high as 43% of the instructor's earnings. All they're doing is, is creating a marketplace where they're connecting buyer seller, instructor, lesson taker. You know, I think they always say Vegas only takes 10%. How in good conscience can they take 30 or 40% of these hardworking instructors' monies? So what I've decided to do is take all the business background I have, all the technology background, and, and literally force a paradigm change on the lesson connection sector. Literally, purposefully, completely disrupted and change it for good. So that these instructors no longer have to give up a percentage of, of their earnings. And so that's, that was the genesis of scheduling lesson. It's a, it's a platform that will always be free for lesson takers. Anywhere in the United States, they can go on. If the parent needs to find a piano teacher for their nine-year-old, they can go on, find a piano instructor. My son actually was the, is the founder of the company, and this started when his pitching coach moved after seven years, and we needed to find a new pitching coach. And we went out and Googled and got two million results and couldn't find anything that made sense. Well, if you go out and buy a vacuum cleaner, you click on four boxes, hit compare, you compare the four vacuum cleaners, and you make an election. And that's the end of it. There's nothing out there for private instructors to showcase themselves and for the consuming public to contrast and compare and make a really good decision. Personal instruction is a very personal decision to get the right fit between student and instructor. Some people like to have choices. So we've created a very dynamic, interactive platform that covers five categories of education, sports, fitness and training, music and dance, and 244 subcategories. And we're now in the process of building out the instructor side. The entire platform is built, built and paid for. I'm really proud of that. Unlike all the competitors, we didn't have to take any venture capital funds. We have no outside investors. I use proceeds from the automation sale and built and funded the entire thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's amazing. Um, but you made it, uh, we go back to the sweat equity model. You made it to where you can do this and pour all you have into a passion of giving back because you used the, the sweat equity model of really buckling down and making something else succeed. And now that's funding giving back. So I, I think that's amazing. 
And, and you've got really, there were two kind of major motivations for this. And the first one was family. You had already mentioned that, uh, that Grant, your, your son is the founder, right? And you're the, you're the CEO, you're the one kind of running it, but it's, it's incredible to see your, your son be a part of it and be the founder. Um, so let me ask about that kind of uh, relationship first with him being the founder. How did he come up with this idea? And then how did you two collaborate together to run it? It's, it's a cute story because this happened. My son's a collegiate baseball pitcher right now in his junior year. But when he, this started, concept, he was a junior in high school when I couldn't find a good pitching instructor online, he, we literally put in his graduation announcement from high school a solicitation to the 200 people we sent graduation announcements to seeking a private investment. And he was trying to get some of, some of our friends and family to chip in to fund it. I was so deep into OEM at that time that I just couldn't commit. But he literally wanted to start this right out of high school. Wow. So for two years, we continued to think this through and continue to build out the concepts and the principles and study the competitive factors in the marketplace. And so then once the, uh, the automation deal was done with OEM, we, we were out for dinner and he's like, you ready to do this? schedule a lesson now? And I hadn't even really thought about it. And sitting there at that dinner, I said, yes, I am. Yep. No reason in the world not to do this. This is, this is our chance once again to come in with that predicate of doing it right and providing this kind of an extensive service for the public and for all the private instructors. So it's just starting with a real feel-good approach to it. And I just think we can do so much good for so many people. Yeah, yeah, it was clearly uh, something important to him too, right? It never left his idea for or left his mind for four years. It, it was still there. He still wanted to do it. And when the opportunity was there, uh, kind of junkyard dog like his father, he saw the opportunity and he pounced. Yeah, absolutely. And we spent the whole the whole last summer on it. I mean, he probably put in 600 hours last summer. And we built out the wireframes. We built all the business principles and processes. We secured a development company. We got one of the top 10 development companies in Dallas-Fort Worth, again, surrounding ourselves with excellence to build it. And they did a phenomenal job for us. And he's, he's a key stakeholder in it. <laughs> so we're going to get back into um, uh, schedule any lesson a little bit more, but I want to hit on uh, your family and, and your children a little bit uh, really quick. So uh, we've talked a little bit about your son and your daughter has just recently done something that I don't believe anybody from her college has been able to do up until her. So can you, can you kind of brag on her for a second? Sure. I'd be happy to. Maybe just to cover two generations real quick, so I'm just equally as proud of my mom. But my mom was the last person in the state of Iowa to pass the bar exam without going to law school. They changed the laws because of her. Then she became the first woman attorney in the eastern third of the state of Iowa. On her honeymoon, you maybe can see behind me, she went to Africa on a safari and shot an elephant, a leopard, and a rhinoceros in the Cape Buffalo and more. Well, I don't know what I did to be blessed with two generations of incredibly intelligent, dynamic, dynamic, rigorous women. But my daughter comes out of the same mold as my mom. And I've always taught my kids no is not an answer. But this time I thought that maybe my daughter Allie had really shot too high. She decided that she wanted to go to work for Google directly out of the University of Arkansas. Well, no one had ever accomplished that out of the University of Arkansas previously. Not because Google doesn't like University of Arkansas graduates, 
is that they like them to have some field experience. So there's only three industries in Arkansas, Walmart, J.B. Hunt, and Tyson Chicken. So Google would let all these graduates go to work for them for three years, and then they would hire them away. Well, Allie didn't want to do the three years in boot camp. She wanted to go straight into Google, and she achieved that. And I'm so incredibly proud of her. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And so what I'm really taking away from this is you've instilled kind of qualities and beliefs in, into both of them. And, and so I've got a, a two-year-old daughter. I've got a, a son on the way here in a couple months. So I'm, this is kind of more selfishly than anything else. But what were some of those most important things of how you were able to instill those qualities in them as you raised these, these children to become young men and women? Uh, <laughs> well, I, I have my own golden rule that's not religious-based, and I started teaching my kids this from the time they were born. And it's basically know what you want, have a plan, execute. And I would always tell them there's so many people that are fumbling around out there in life, and they don't even know what they want. And then there's all the dreamers that know what they want, and they have no plan or no ability to make a plan. And then there are people that are a little bit more finite, and they make great plans, but they have no ability to execute. And so from day one in their lives, they said, this is the three-step process to accomplish anything. If you want to be the starting point guard on your, your basketball team, here's what you need to do. And if, just, I, if my son didn't play baseball, I used to tell him, I said, you know what you do every Saturday morning? I'd have you go out in the backyard and dig a hole, and then I'd have you fill it back in. Because my mom, since I didn't have a father, she was worried that if she passed away, I'd be stranded. It was so important for her to instill a work ethic in me at the age of six, seven, eight, nine, and be able to have some control of my destiny. I just carried that forward to the next generation. And my kids, as soon as they started to enjoy successes, they got it. Especially all this talk about millennials now. I'm like, you have an advantage. Work harder. It's that easy. Yeah. Work hard. Write your own check. Take control of your destiny. And they've just really grabbed that by the horns and, and have, have run with it. And I'm very proud of it. It was just the reinforced at those very early ages. I mean, my, my, my son's name is Grant. So the time he was two, I used to tease him. My name is Grant. And I never say can't. Because can't, I just, I wouldn't have it. Just like I wouldn't let him drop down and throw from the side. I just wouldn't let the kids ever say they can't. I would really just kind of question, please help me understand. What is it that you can't do? And what are we going to do definitely so you can do it? And they just, that's been ingrained in them since they were little ones up to now they're 23 and 21. And it's, it's, it's obviously the great, we talk about it, these other accomplishments are negligible compared to the accomplishment you feel with parenthood. And I'm just so proud of both of them. Yeah. And, and a lot of what you, oh, what's that? Oh, a lot of what you, thank you for asking. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, so a lot of what you just hit on was, uh, instilling those beliefs and qualities to help them succeed. Uh, but one of the things I'm also seeing is not just succeed, but also they have these qualities of, of sharing and giving back, right? Your, your son for four years to have this idea of creating a platform to give back in the back of his mind, that's not normal for a 17, 18 year old young man going to play college baseball. So you not only instilled these qualities of success, but also of making sure that you're giving back, adding value, and finding ways to positively impact other people as well. So I, I think it's uh, it's kind of both sides of of, uh, of success. 
I'm so pleasing to be able to see that. For example, when my daughter went to Arkansas, she did, she got a dual major in marketing and supply chain management in four years, which is rigorous enough. But she did the extra extracurricular activities like leadership development and everything. She should have had no time left on her schedule, right? She found and she was so proud of the University of Arkansas that for three years she volunteered to do the student tours for prospective new students. That's an uncompensated role. That's it, getting up and being there at 7.30 on Saturday morning and walking parents and prospective students around campus. She did that. She led uh, Bible studies on campus. Both, both my kids, they not only have a great Christian foundation, but they were just raised to really be reflective of how fortunate they are in life and really go through life with the eyes wide open and see the pain and the suffering and the poverty and all the other ills of society. And be focused on doing something about it. You know, you're, again, in my life, everything comes back to enrichment and fulfillment. You know, it's great to have your personal successes, but I've taught my kids that you will feel far more enriched if you have something to do with somebody else's success. So yep. it's the prevailing culture all these years, and they've adopted it beautifully. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. So, so let's, uh, let's jump into the, the second motivation for Schedule Any Lesson, and that would go into your, uh, the impact from your college experience, because I think that that really led into uh, a reason to give back to teachers and instructors. So can you jump into that for us? Can you give me a little more clarification? I yeah, help. yeah, I'm sorry. So when we had talked uh, prior, you had said when you were in college, um, just the impact that your collegiate experience at your college uh, it helped you so much as far as saying, I know the vision that I want to go forward, but then also at the end, you said that you wanted to give back to instructors and teachers. Uh, okay. Yes, absolutely. Uh, that, I, I think that is the key is to, I mean, why do people take private instruction? They, they do it because they need to augment their learning or they're looking for a competitive advantage. And I, I just really felt like there's this disconnect in the marketplace and one that want to help these private instructors, especially these teachers. So with, with our model, I mean, I have this saying, if something's being done the same way it was done in 1950, it's probably not as efficient or effective as it could be. Well, even today, most private instructors are relying on word of mouth. And so you've got all these, especially all these educators that are counting on Agnes says, hey, do you want to teach little Johnny algebra type thing? And so what I want to do is completely take away the word-of-mouth referral system and give our teachers and our trainers and tutors and so forth a form where they can select who their students are. So instead of just having to take little Johnny, now all of a sudden they might get contacted with 15 prospective students in a week. They can pick ones that are the best match for them as well as for the student that aligns perfectly with the student's interest as well as their particular skill sets that they're going to train. So uh, I think it's going to really help across, across the spectrum for people that are giving private instruction to align with, with the right type of lesson taking. Yeah, yeah, no, perfect. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so let's get back into more of the uh, um, diving into the Schedule Any lesson. So one thing that you guys are doing is the uh, that first-year initiative. So – this is something that I think any, any coach, any instructor listening or watching to this uh, really wants to pay attention to. So can you share that to the viewers and listeners? 
Yes, I'd be happy to. It's part of the giving back model. I would like to give just a quick overview of what Scheduled Any Lesson really is. Yeah. What it is is designed to be is a national directory for private instructors. Become the authoritative go-to source for everyone online in the United States when they need a private instructor for any one of those 244 categories that we offer. They go in there and can pull up based upon their zip code, the closest instructors, and start to compare the instructors. So that's on the public side. On the instructor side, a lot of the instructors are not technology savvy or they're not marketing savvy. So they're still placing sole reliance on the word-of-mouth referral system. Well, we want to provide them with a turnkey solution where we take care of all their marketing. We, we put them in our national directory online. We take care of all their marketing, all their advertising, their business development, everything. And just like a dealer getting an order for a prepaid parts order, same thing here. We want to be able to route lesson takers to the instructors. And from that point on, they can establish their own relationship. Well, how are we doing that? The way we're doing that is we've built this comprehensive platform that starts with the national directory. But within that directory, every instructor gets their own personalized, customized website. We build a very intuitive, easy-to-complete template where the instructor can go in and bring in profile pictures and videos and all kinds of information about them as far as their credentials and their experience and their education, the, the skills they teach and the ACEs teach and so forth, we give them a very dynamic platform to complete this personalized website profiling their skills and abilities and their entire offering model. So all they have to do is populate that. We give them a personalized URL with their name, whatever they select for direct access. We don't want to be in the middle. Unlike all our competitors that force themselves in the middle as a third-party administrator, we want to create this open forum, transparent platform. So if you're in the future looking for dance lessons for a child, you just go on, you look at, like I saying, you can compare and contrast the first five closest instructors. Look at you. The beauty of it is it'll show you five instructors, and then you can drill down and look at each one of their websites. So you can really learn everything that you'd like to learn and do your due diligence before you child with this instructor. Gives the instructor an opportunity to showcase their skills and abilities, yep. all completely automated. Well, it, it goes back to uh, the analogy you said earlier of the comparing the vacuums, right? When you yes. these people get that same access, and you're you're just making it easier for the end user and for the uh, the instructor as well. So now you're connecting people with the right relationships, which is going to make it a win-win on both sides. Exactly. If this would have existed when my son was looking for a pitching coach, we'd have looked for a pitching coach with a tremendous amount of experience, one that teaches 16-year-olds, one that teaches students that are specifically on a track to get a college scholarship and their college and potentially beyond. So we wouldn't want a rec coach, for example. We'd want a very specific coach with that acuity and training and experience level to do that. So that's the goal. The compelling part here in helping these instructors, and again, I'm talking about every educator, tutor, trainer, coach, instructor in the country, we want to make this economically viable for them. When we started this, we were 97.5% cheaper than the largest competitor in the industry. We will never take a percentage of the instructor's fees ever. All we charge 
is $8.99 a month, which is basically what we refer to as a technology hosting fee. That gets you in our directory, gets you your complete website, your URL, all the traffic that comes with it and everything. Well, now we have decided, and this is so much fun to say, we're no longer 97.5% cheaper. Now we're 100% cheaper. I, I have decided, again, as part of the focus of giving back, that we are offering every coach, tutor, trainer, and instructor in the United States a free website for We've created a, a promotion code, 12 months free. When an instructor goes on, they can build out their profile on our site. And when they go to checkout, they can just put in that code, 12 months free, and they'll get a whole year for free. Uh, I, I think that's amazing. Um, it goes back into that giving back mentality. And like I said, anybody listening that that's an instructor or coach, you, you need to take advantage of that. He, the value that they're offering right here is, is incredible. So I, I love the initiative. I, I think you're doing all the right things for it. And, and I just appreciate what you're doing. Um, I, I want the company I ran was a, a sports coaching and event company. My wife was a teacher. So, uh, this hits home because I've seen, both sides of sports and the uh, the teaching side. And I think you're just creating a lot of value and service for these people that need it. Well, you just touched on the key word, and this was always my, if I ever had a mandate in corporate America, this was my mandate. And it was always to provide more value than we charged for. It was that simple. I mean, it sounds very remedial, but it's not. When you're sitting there dealing with boards of directors and everybody else, but that was our value proposition. It didn't matter whether I was a construction or healthcare or automotive sector. It didn't matter. I wanted to provide more value than I charged for because there are only a certain number of people that want to go to bottom feeders and deal with, you know, the erratic nature of working with a bottom feeder. People just want premium quality and services at a moderate price point. They don't want to have their head taken off. And so in this case, I mean, Again, I, I can't use any word other than appalled to think that people are taking 30 or 40% of these instructors' fees. And so now, now they can have this opportunity to go to the market and get tremendous value with no cost whatsoever. It's yep. going to be fun to watch. Our, go, our goal is to ultimately enroll 500,000 instructors across our five verticals of education, sports, fitness, music, and dance. And once we do that, the traffic that will come there, our domain rating with Google will go through the roof. And we will have done it the old-fashioned way, the hard way, instead of buying it. Yep, yep, that's perfect. And one of the one of the reasons you're able to do this, keep costs a lot lower, make it focused on adding more value than than price, is what you talked about earlier. Of you went about creating this the right way. You didn't. You don't have to answer answer to venture capitalists who have some exit strategy. You don't have to answer to any stockholders or anything like that you guys are able to go forward the way you want to, to give back and not have to answer to people who are money hungry. We, we have no earnings pressure at all. I mean, you, you know the model. If you deal with venture capitalists, I mean, expect day one, the 30, 37.5% internal rate of return. They're going to expect an exit strategy within 24 to 48 months. They're going to expect a multiple of five times or more upon exit. If you, you can't put that kind of economic burden on a startup company. I mean, if you do, what happens? You have to urge your customers, right? And that's what's prevailing in the industry, and I don't want any part of that. That's why I chose to fund it myself. So 
I only have to answer to myself and my son. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and, and it, uh, it allows you to keep your focus on what you want it to be on. So Just have fun. Yeah. 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 I, I want to go into some finishing questions about principles and philosophies, but before I do, anything else that you want to hit on and let people know about with schedule any lesson? Anything that we didn't cover yet? No, other than just to let people know, it's the, the website is www.schedulelesson.com. Yep, perfect. And, and we'll hit on uh, some things right at the end of uh, other ways that they can connect with you. And I'll make sure I put all of this in the show notes as well. So, okay. all right. So let's, uh, let's go into these, uh, these principles and philosophies, some finishing questions for you. Okay. Um, so the first one, we, we just recently talked about, uh, about your kids and, and giving them lessons throughout their life. If you could only pass on one or two lessons or principles uh, to your kids for the rest of their lives, what would you leave them with? I'm a big proponent of it's better to give than to get. I, uh, I lived my whole life. I've, I've been saying since I was young, I would rather give 99 times than get once. And I just really honestly, intuitively believe that what, what you give and what you do for others comes back to you in amazing ways and not just in spiritual ways, but just in life in general. Friendships are developed, the camaraderie, the relationships, Avery Johnson spoke at my kid's college one day, and, and he said something that's so profound. He said, someone is always watching. And what he meant was, someone is watching, and when you're behaving, behaving is probably not the right word, but acting, conducting yourself in the right manner, you're opening doors for yourself. Conversely, people that aren't are closing doors for themselves that never even knew the door was there, let alone that they closed it themselves. And so I've really taught my kids to just, just be focused on giving back and, and everything else will take care of itself. Yeah, no, I, I think that's great. Um, okay, so next one. What is one thing that's going on right now in, in the United States, in society, whatever you want, that you wish that you could change or have an impact on? <laughs> Washington. <laughs> Gosh, I, I can't hardly stand to watch read Flipboard every morning. But I'm, I was eight years old. I learned what an efficiency expert was and said, that's me. That's what I want to be. And that's what OEM was. I mean, it was a learning technology efficiency model. That's what scheduling a lesson. I'll never be hundreds of employees for scheduling a lesson. I won't be passing through all those costs of hundreds of employees. I'm passing through efficiency. And then I watched the, the, just the comedy of stuff that's going on in Washington I, I literally, with my CPA, CFO background, I'd love to be president for a week. I'd fix the budget, I guarantee you. <laughs> for the nonsense that goes on there. So it's a tough watch these days. And it's, it's embarrassing. As much as I want to be a good role model for my kids, I think Washington today is a disgrace as a role model for our president of America. Yeah. which party you are. Right. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so the name of the show is Success Defined. So uh, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, how do you define success in your life today? Uh, for, for me, it's clearly watching the performance of my kids. I put that much commitment. When I, since I walked away from corporate America in 2004, I put every second of my life and my passion, my conviction in, in my kids, putting them through schools and colleges and everything and just being there for them all the time and to me, that's a success. Economics are, are literally irrelevant to me. 
You know, that's, that's, was never a driving force. I mean, but when I said earlier, I wanted to be CEO or CFO, it was because I wanted to make that level of contribution. It was never, I want the income that comes with that role. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to make a difference. And I felt like it didn't make a difference, especially when I was responsible for 50,000 open heart surgeries a year. That's, that's a big responsibility. And even though I wasn't a clinician, I held them to the highest level of clinical accountability, as you can imagine. Unless it's up my desk in a malpractice case. But no, it's just clearly my kids have been the, my definition of success. And, and, and I, re- I really think once, when I look up someday and there's 500,000 instructors in scheduling a lesson, and I'm going to want to hear from people. I'm going to want people to tell me. I mean, I'm the kind of person, send me your stories. Tell me how you had four years of pitching lessons and now your son is in the minor leagues. Tell me how your, your daughter learned ballet and now she's in New York on stage in Broadway. I mean, those are the kinds of stories that I'm going to want to be able to share with us online about why, why people take private instruction and what the return on investment of that really is. And that's what people are looking for is an opportunity to better themselves. And so if I can just be one, 1% of that betterment, it will be very enriching. Perfect. So you kind of hit on this a little bit. So this will be maybe an easy transition to the final question. But the last one is you and I are sitting here three years from now. What's happened in, in that three year span to where you can say that was a successful three years? Well, I think the key for us is, you know, it's, it's, it's great that I'm able to build and fund scheduling a lesson, but I don't have a massive budget to communicate it. You know, I can't commit a half a million dollars to Facebook advertising or Google AdWord campaigns and so forth. And so that's why it's so important to me to get the word out there any way I can. And so a venue like today is ideal for that. I mean, I think it's, it's such a great message to share. Uh, you mentioned uh, offline that you like the phrase that we created, Americans Connecting Americans. We have a referral program, but we need the help of fellow Americans. And that's really the campaign that we're starting right now. Is I'm going to start to, I've got 23,000 connections in LinkedIn, for example, getting the word out there that we're offering this service absolutely free for a year. Every teacher and coach and tutor and trainer and instructor. And my, my fulfillment on that would be, when I really see that work and we look up and we've got 50,000 instructors, 100,000, 150,000 instructors, and we're really making a difference in people's lives. I'm not uh, thinking it's going to be tremendously easy, but then again, I don't have a history of taking the easy way. So once again, it's just going to be a rigorous pursuit of excellence. And, and so that's why I'm so appreciative that you gave me this forum to introduce the scheduling lesson. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and thank you for, for giving your, your time and, and energy to, uh, to come on and do this. I, I think it was extremely valuable for people who are running companies or in some sort of leadership position. They've got a ton of takeaways from, from what we talked about. And then also for the teachers and instructors for what you're doing. So from uh, one giver to another, thank you for, uh, for giving your time and energy today. Yeah, thank you. You're very welcome. Yeah. So any, uh, any parting thoughts? Uh, for the listeners and viewers. And then after that, where can people find you, connect with you, things like that? Well, I think uh, 
I've, I've done, I've mentioned, you know, I've interviewed a thousand people, hired 200. I've mentioned a lot of people. I, if, all, all I would really tell people is to really, if they're going to be entrepreneurial, to really do a self-evaluation, take a really good look at themselves, really challenge their mettle, challenge their determination, their resilience, and then challenge their business model. And then if they feel really good about it, cross the line. But once, once you cross the line, you've got to tell yourself, there's no quit. Okay? I'm in it to win it. If I'm going to do it now, then I've got to go full scope, full scale, and take this to success. Okay? So that, that would probably be the best advice I could give someone. If that def- deters some people from doing it because maybe they're too wishy-washy or they think their business model is too vulnerable, you know, you, you can't go into it with stars in your eyes. Right. And you really got to have a rock-solid business model if you're going to put that kind of pursuit and energy into it. Yep. Perfect. And then uh, where can people uh, find schedule any lesson? Where can people uh, reach out to you with questions, uh, comments, things like that? Okay. Well, it's easy to find. It's, it's the name itself. It's www.schedulealnylesson.com. Uh, they can contact us through info at schedulealnylesson.com. Uh, I take such great pride in being personally approachable that you can just go to cliff at schedulealnylesson.com. If you want to make sure that you're sending an email directly to my inbox, then I would be happy to respond to anybody and everybody. And I'd be very appreciative of anyone who will help share the word out there about what we're offering. And now you have a little bit more background in not only what we're offering, but why we're offering it and the impact that we want to have in the marketplace for private instructors. Perfect. Thank you so much, Cliff. I appreciate it. Okay. Thank you, Ben. It's been a pleasure.